Today on the show, we're not mocking you. We're trying to interest you. Spicy. Straight into our beds. <laughs> Do you feel interested? <laughs> Is that an interest in your pocket or are you just happy to see me? Have I peaked your boner? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> really dropping the euphemisms at that point. <laughs> You know, it's a mixed metaphor, but I think it lands the point. <laughs> Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And boy, we're talking sci-fi. Sci-fi channel. <laughs> we're always talking sci-fi. We are always. That's, that's, that's the genre we exist within. <laughs> Can you believe we're talking about science fiction today? <laughs> What? <laughs> Shocking, I know. <laughs> no, more specifically today, we are talking about the Sci-Fi Channel's Dune miniseries. This has been a highly requested episode, Leo. We've had listeners upon listeners demand <laughs> that we do a deep dive on this three-part miniseries from the Sci-Fi Channel. So here we are, finally doing it. Indeed, indeed. But let's get through some housekeeping, and then we'll talk about how we're going to structure this conversation. First up, the miniseries covers the events of Dune. So, spoiler warning for the first book, and of course, Denis Villeneuve's film, which is like the first third of the book. That's right. And as always, a reminder that the best way to support this show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash gomjabar. Mm. Not only will you help us keep this geeky little show thriving for years to come, mm -hmm. but you get fun bonuses like ad-free episodes, early access to future book clubs, and an invite to our exclusive Discord server where you can chat with me and Leo directly. It's true. <laughs> it's almost a threat. Of course, <laughs> we have to give a huge shout out to our Quisats Hatterack level patrons, Kasich and Nate Hyde. Good Lord, fellas. Your generosity is incredible. We'd cast you in the uh, God Emperor of Dune miniseries if sci-fi had the balls. Come on, uh -huh. sci-fi, <laughs> please. You gonna pony up, sci-fi channel? Let us do it. We love rock climbing. <laughs> <laughs> More than you know. <laughs> now, another great way to support the show is to check out our merch at gomjabarshop.com. Stop stressing about what you're going to wear to that date tonight, folks. The answer <laughs> is on gomjabarshop.com. Be single forever. <laughs> <laughs> Scare them off real early. <laughs> Finally, we love to hear from you. So write to us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. Send us memes, cute pictures of pets, yours or other people's, and book recommendations. We love to hear any of it. Now, I'll also point out, these sorts of episodes that go a little bit beyond talking about Frank's six books, do you like them? Do you hate them? 
What are your thoughts? Let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know. We'd love to keep experimenting with the types of episodes we do on the show. And so we want to hear your feedback when we do it, like today. ASMR, whole episode, yes or no? (laughs) (laughs) Do you want an OnlyFans? Yes or no? (laughs) Only worms. (laughs) Only worms. Become an exclusive member of our Only Worms. (laughs) (laughs) How awful. Okay, with the housekeeping out of the way, let's actually do a bit of scene setting and talk about the background of this sci-fi series. Because I'll be honest, I did not know about this sci-fi series. I was far too young to have watched it when it first came out. And even later in life, it's weirdly something I just never came across. Even though I read and reread the books and I've consumed so much Dune media, Yeah, this three-part series and then the Children of Dune three-part series, never crossed my table until we started doing this podcast and we had listeners bring it up. So let's actually talk about these series a bit and go over some background and history for how they came about. For the folks who, like me, may not know these even exist. Right. So in December of 2000, the Sci-Fi Channel released this miniseries, this three-episode miniseries called Frank Herbert's Dune. Now, it was written and directed by John Harrison, who was nominated for a Hugo Award in 2001 for Best Dramatic Presentation. Naturally, he didn't win because people don't appreciate (laughs) art. The series stars William Hurt as Duke Leto, Alec Newman as Paul, and Saskia Reeves as Lady Jessica. And according to Inverse, the series was one of the most popular programs Sci-Fi Channel had ever launched at that time, at least in terms of, like, viewership. That is just such a mind-blowing... Again, as someone who just didn't know this existed until, like, the past year, <laughs> yeah, that's a mind-blowing statistic, that this was such a popular thing for Sci-Fi Channel. <laughs> well, maybe it's not such a high bar to beat, you know? Like, <laughs> I saw Lynch's film, which came out before I was born. I was 10. There's no excuse for me not to have seen this. And yet, it was squirreled away in the little pocket of, if you watched sci-fi, is my understanding, the sci-fi series. Yeah. Because otherwise, how would you fucking have found it? That's true. That's true. You buy the DVDs? <laughs> I guess. What? You buy wait, the wait, VHS? Wait, wait, hold up. What was, what? What are these letters you're saying back to back sequentially? DVD? D? It's it's like an MP3, but okay, much better as a projectile weapon, <laughs> <laughs> and works as a makeup mirror. So listen, three in one, it's pretty sweet. Wow, damn, yeah. listeners, please explain what DVDs are to me. Come to our podcast at gmail.com. Just wait till we talk about laser discs. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be some Frank Herbert shit. <laughs> no, now, it's from the okay, it's from the eighties. Holtz, Holtzman didn't invent laser discs. Okay, that's that, that's for another podcast. Now, following the success of Frank Herbert's Dune, this three episode series on Sci Fi Channel, they hired John Harrison once again to write and direct another miniseries to make the sequel. And thus, in two thousand three, Sci Fi released another three part miniseries. This one called simply Children of Dune. It was written by John Harrison. 
but not directed by him this time. It was directed by a man named Greg Yatanes, is how I'm going to decide to butcher that name. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. <laughs> now, this sequel miniseries covered the events of both Dune Messiah and Children of Dune, so books two and three in the Dune saga. And many of the original cast from the first miniseries returned to reprise their roles in this one as well. For clarity, over the next three episodes, we'll be covering the first three-episode sci-fi miniseries, Frank Herbert's Dune. Right. We aren't going to be getting into the Children of Dune sequel series, at least not yet. Probably sometime in the future. So, the question comes up. We're talking about a series that's almost a quarter century old. How do you watch it? Where do you find it? Where is it? You have to go on a quest. <laughs> well, at the moment, neither Frank Herbert's Dune or the Children of Dune miniseries are available on any of the modern streaming services. But fortunately, all three episodes of the Dune miniseries that we're talking about are available for free on YouTube. So amazing. If you can't find them, we will have the link in the show notes. The 2003 Children of Dune miniseries is a lot harder to find. You can get it from some libraries, from some local libraries. There's apps like Libby and Hoopla. Otherwise, you'll have to buy the DVD or find it online. But what? Somewhere. But somebody explain this to me. It's like a Betamax, but <laughs> flatter. <laughs> what? You know reel-to-reel? -reel? It's like reel-to-reel, -reel, but shinier basically you're just saying words now man <laughs> this is stuff you've seen in the encyclopedia mimic film strips abu come on <laughs> it's real do you know what those are it's from the 50s it's not <laughs> <laughs> so over the next three episodes part one part two and part three we'll be talking about episodes one two and three of frank herbert's dune from 2000 and as usual on this podcast we'll be giving it that classic Gom Jabbar deep dive treatment. Now, of course, sprinkled all throughout the discussion today will be fun lore tidbits and a lot of Dune universe geekiness because we can't help ourselves. <laughs> it's it's just the reality yeah. of it. Yep. <laughs> so now that we've taken care of housekeeping and we're all caught up on these two miniseries and their histories, we're going to take a short break, but stick around, folks, because in just a minute, We'll be back to dive into episode one of Sci-Fi Channel's Frank Herbert's Dune. I uh, can't wait. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Welcome back, everybody. Now, Let's start with an overview of the episode and kind of what it contained. There isn't a huge point in summarizing scene by scene, you know, beat by beat, because it's Dune. <laughs> it's <Yeah. laughs> intended to be a fairly faithful adaptation of Dune. All of the major moments that you expect to see from the first half of the book are there. We get the Gamj Bar test, we get the sparring with Gurney, the 
hunter seeker scene, fantastic. The sand crawler rescue scene. We mm, get the so good. banquet scene. Hello. Hollywood, Villeneuve, come on. We get Duke Leto's death, of course, etc., etc. We get quite a bit, and we get more. But again, it all kind of follows the same familiar plot beats of Dune. Yeah, it's all there. All the pieces and parts are there. And I know you and I differ on our interpretations and opinions on this a little bit. But for me, all the scenes are there, but they're not quite exactly representative of what I got from the book or how I think it should have been adapted from the book. Right. Which stands in contrast to a lot of what I've heard about this sci-fi series. Everything you read online is like, this is so accurate. Oh my gosh, it's just like reading the book. If you want a one-for-one adaptation of the book, the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries is where it's at, y'all. <laughs> yeah. This is so crazy accurate. <laughs> and I watched it and was like, I don't know, like all the pieces and parts are there, but I wouldn't necessarily call this one-for-one 100% accurate. <laughs> right. Some scenes to me felt too short and rushed, while others had some changes that ranged from genuinely interesting to quite baffling. The part that actually made me say what out loud was the moment Irulan showed up to the banquet in in a butterfly dress. Listen, love a butterfly. <laughs> love a good butterfly dress. Yeah. And I know you have a lot of thoughts on that scene later in today's episode. So we'll revisit that in a bit. Right. I will say, despite some of my issues with how the scenes were altered, though, a lot of classic lines are retained. Right. And there are just some iconic Dune moments that will never not be awesome. And so all of those are certainly in this show as well. Right. As we've kind of been saying, there are additional scenes and changes, things like Irulan being present at the banquet, that flesh out some of these relationships and characters and backgrounds that we don't even get necessarily in the book by Frank Herbert. And part of this comes down to the director making that decision, these scenes need to be combined. How do we create new scenes that keep this linear story moving forward and not jumping around as much as the book, frankly, does, right? Where yeah. you very seldom have subsequent chapters with the same characters. Oftentimes, you're going thousands of miles on a page flip. For example, during the banquet, you know, we get this fantastic little moment with Gurney and Paul where... Gurney explains how he was saved from the Harkonnen slave pits. An incredible little morsel of Gurney Halleck backstory injected into a scene where I, in the book he's really just kind of standing, ready to act, but not really doing anything. Fantastic. Lovely little moment. Yeah, I loved that moment. And I loved that it added to our understanding of Paul and Gurney's relationship. Yeah. I did like a lot of the quieter interpersonal scenes that were added throughout. There was also a scene where Duke Leto and Lady Jessica are just like lying in bed, presumably naked, about to fuck each other's <laughs> brains out. And yeah, I think that showed us the genuine love between these two characters Yeah, that we don't necessarily get in other adaptations. In other versions of Dune, we're just told to assume that these two people deeply love each other or read between the lines. And here it was explicit. They were seconds away from banging on screen. <laughs> from creating Alia. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth noting 
throughout this, we're going to be kind of comparing to Villeneuve's adaptation, but I can't help but think about Oscar Isaac and Ferguson in the room together and him going, you know, will you protect Paul? There was such a feeling of at arm's length in that moment. Yeah. And that is totally not in this version. And I, I, I don't think that there's a right choice. I don't think that there is one that's better or worse, but I do think that it is canonical that Duke Leto loves Jessica so much and vice versa. And I think this miniseries with the little scenes that it's added, just like you said, have really brought that to the foreground so that we understand more Jessica's sorrow when Duke Leto is killed, right? Totally. I couldn't agree more. Now, the other thing that's a little different in this miniseries is how Paul's prescient abilities are handled. And it's important to keep in mind that we're only talking about episode one. Paul's abilities don't truly unlock until later in the book. Right. So here, early in the story, the show kind of puts his prescience and his visions in the background, which is a choice they made. I don't think it was right or wrong. It was just a decision to put Paul's prescience in the backseat and lean a bit more heavily into imperial politics. There's a quite a few extra scenes where they spend time talking about Harkonnen motivations, the emperor's motivations, what the politics are, what's at play here. Yeah. Instead of focusing on Paul's abilities, which I think Villeneuve's movie honed in a bit more on. Right. Now, the last thing we want to say about the plot before we jump into some of the more specifics of what we loved and didn't like about this first episode is that the end point is around roughly the 90 minute mark. And it's the scene where Paul and Jessica are in an ornithopter, having left the ecological testing station, and they are heading into the Coriolis storm. And that's where the first episode ends, the minute they rush into the Coriolis storm. Let's now transition into our next segment today. We each picked two things that we loved about this miniseries. And so we're going to share those in more depth and discuss them. Leo. How about you kick it off for us? What's the first thing that you absolutely loved about this series? I'll caveat all of this by saying I'm going to force Abu to do another commentary on this miniseries. And I think that will be the point at which I point out every delightful little thing that tickles me that just makes this such a fun watching experience for me. Categorically, I loved the whole thing. is so much fun bold okay i know i just love it it's so much fun and my first topic is accuracy comma mostly (laughs) because listen (laughs) i was doing a lot of work it's it's a big comma it's a very it's a font 27 (laughs) comma in a font 11 sentence but i am very much of the opinion that this was until Villeneuve took a crack at it like the definitive adaptation of dune Not because it's 100% faithful to every page of the book. I think, naturally, when you go from a novel to a television series, you have to make those changes and you have to make those adaptations. And I don't love all of the changes. I'll be clear. One of the things I'm going to talk about later is a thing I really don't like, and it's a change. But keep in mind, this is in the year 2000. This was the first thing since 
David Lynch. And before David Lynch was Jodorowsky. And this is so much better <laughs> than <laughs> David Lynch. And people saw what Lynch did and said, oh, yeah, he proved it. Dune is unadaptable. And yes, in 2021 and 2022, we can look at it and go, no, no, you're wrong. Denis Villeneuve is doing a great job. But it's just so clear to me that the director loves the source material. And there are so many little moments that make it clear to me that it is a project of passion. And it's one that was not just a random squeezing a fandom for all it was worth or attempting to... <laughs> adapt something that you didn't quite understand. We get most of our iconic scenes and lines, which in a front-loaded book like Dune, it's an accomplishment to adapt the first part of this story with all of its tiny little beats. We get the Jessica Yui scene by the window. We get mm -hmm. the banquet scene, the fucking banquet scene, which shows us Arrakis and shows us the people. We see Jessica abolish the practice of selling water. All of these little scenes that are just utterly missing from even Villeneuve's adaptation. It's fantastic. Now, as much as I keep kind of comparing Villeneuve's adaptation in a non-complimentary light, I do think that Villeneuve is on track to deliver the definitive Dune cinematic experience but I think that this miniseries certainly did its part to kind of pave the way in showing Villeneuve what to do and what not to do. That's fair. Yeah. I can certainly agree that it's better than David Lynch's movie. <laughs> We're on the same page there, at least. <laughs> <laughs> and I also agree, like, to your point, as critical as I am and am going to be in this discussion about this miniseries, you make an excellent point that Dune was considered unadaptable for many years for many reasons. And I think it took something like this miniseries to prove, wait, this story is something that people are interested in, yeah, that can be adapted, and if handled well with care and love, like it clearly was in this miniseries, it is a story that will resonate with audiences far and wide. So... I completely agree on that front. As many nitpicks as I have with this miniseries, in a broad sense, it proved that Dune could be adapted and perhaps laid the groundwork for Danny Villeneuve himself getting the green light to make his movie. I also just think, you know, if you watch the miniseries, it's clear that a lot of decisions were made. And I think some of them land really well, and I think some of them don't. But when I step away from watching the miniseries, I get that feeling that the heart and soul of Dune is pretty much intact. And also separately, I really just enjoyed myself. It reminds me of like the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest film adaptation, where the book and the movie are very, very different experiences, but they both explore the same themes and the same narrative, but from slightly different perspectives. Very different experiences, but both fantastic. And it seems to me the miniseries was attempting to be something that stood alone on its own merits as a fun, bold, vibrant, watchable thing, while still adhering to the heart and soul of what makes Dune Dune. Yeah. But yeah, stepping away from it, its adherence to the core themes of Dune, I think is commendable. And I 
still look on it very fondly. But Abu, I'd like to put you in the uncomfortable position of telling me something you love <laughs> about this show. <laughs> Just because I'm critical doesn't mean I hate it. (laughs) I liked it. I had fun. I just had a lot of problems with it. (laughs) Yeah. So one thing that I did absolutely love, and actually for transparency's sake, I have not watched episode two and three yet. I decided to watch this in real time as we record and script and have these conversations. Right. You are one third of the way through the art piece, which is to say your criticism 100% valid. And actually is something that's not even really accessible to me because I remember getting to the end of this first episode and going next (laughs) and hitting play (laughs) and not taking a moment to like reflect and go, do I feel satisfied so far? I was just like, let's fucking go. Part two. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's good. This discussion's good. hundred percent. For sure. Okay. So let me talk about the first thing that I did love about this series. And that's the set design. Yeah. In almost every scene, this stood out to me. I loved the design and aesthetic of Arakeen and Arrakis, of Giddy Prime. Mm -hmm. And then in this series, we actually even saw Kaiten. Yeah. Which is something Denny hasn't shown in his films yet. There are basically four locations in this first episode, and all of them feel so distinct with their own personality, with their own vibes, with their own color palettes. And I loved and appreciated that it added to my understanding of the world and to the tone being set in each of those scenes. Giddy Prime, for example, just screams, hey, yo, these are the bad guys. Everything is washed in like literal blood red lighting. (laughs) And every single room has these like sharp industrial angles. All the marble is like the darkest fucking like marble you can buy from Home Depot, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And then when you jump to Kaiten, everything is washed in this blue or purplish color palette. Very cooled color tones. Royal, regal, yeah. Exactly, royal, regal. In addition to that, a lot of the Kaiten scenes are focused on Irulan. And how I read that was these cool, distant color palettes are a way of showing us how unwelcoming a place the Imperial Palace might be for someone like Irulan. How she constantly lives in the shadow of the literal emperor of the known universe. Moving on to Arrakis and specifically Arakeen Palace, where a lot of scenes in this episode take place. I loved that there were some clear inspirations from Eastern architecture and interior design when it came to Arakeen Palace. That soft, sandy color palette was perfect very warm tones on this one. In addition, like if I can gush about one more thing when it comes to Arrakis, we saw Arakeen as a bustling city. There were a couple of scenes where they're in some sort of car taxi thing. And you can see the marketplace and the people of the city watching this Royal procession drive by. And I liked that we got to see Arakeen as a city with life in it. I think that's something that, the Denny Villeneuve adaptation dropped the ball on because right. Arakeen in that is like this lifeless backdrop. It's like a barracks. It just seems like a military yeah. palace. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So all of that is to say the set design, the color palettes, the very intentional choices that were made there, I loved. 
and really stood out to me. And I appreciated, to your point earlier, that it showed us how much about the Dune universe the creators of this miniseries understand. Yeah, it's incredible. Okay, Leo, I see your next note, and I'm <laughs> itching to get to this too. What is item number two that you wanted to talk about today? Oh, it's that you loved. Oh, it's, it's Irulan. It's Irulan yes. Carino. I agree with this. Yep. Denis Villeneuve, take fucking note, friend. Take note. Come on, dude. If all you read is Dune by Frank Herbert, I can almost understand you thinking little of Irulan Carino. She shows up in like three pages. She's basically right. a pawn. She is a thing, literally, that Paul's like, yo, I claim you. She's like, okay. So you, I can understand that. But if you look at, first of all, the fact that nearly every fucking chapter starts with something that she wrote. If you look at the fact that she becomes a central character in Messiah and even Children of Dune, and you look at her life and her story, she's one of my favorite characters. And I think we on this podcast are very pro-Irulan. We generally like Irulan a lot. Yes. This adaptation does her so much justice. Her scenes, these scenes that are literally written, they're new scenes, they feel in line with her character, but they also shine this sympathetic light on someone who, honestly, I think Frank Herbert dropped the ball on being sympathetic towards until, like, Children of Dune, honestly. For sure. To be clear, Irulan is royalty. She's literally the daughter of the Emperor of the Universe. But she's used by the Bene Gesserit for political machinations. She's used by her father as like a bargaining token in imperial politics. It's just left and right. She's being used by people in her life. And I can't even begin to imagine what that feels like from a human perspective. Like how dissatisfying must that be? Plus, her favorite color is not blue, despite what Kaiten <laughs> might lead you to believe. She loves orange or whatever color <laughs> Paul is. She loves Paul color. <laughs> she's, she's trying to interest him. We actually get that conversation between Paul and Irulan where she's going, my life kind of sucks. And Paul's going, suck it up. You're royalty. And she goes, but you should know as any better than anybody how short of a stick this can be, especially for her as a woman being used by people left and right. It's just nuts. Yeah. And man, they knocked it out of the park too with casting. Julie Cox cannot oh believe it. An incredible energy to the screen. She's just so sharp-witted and funny and smart and beautiful, of course, and regal and royal. It's magnificent. I agree. I loved Irulan in this. I loved Julie Cox's representation of Irulan in this. I loved that we got more Irulan than we do in, like, the first three books combined. <laughs> right. It's incredible. Fleshing out this incredible character is the right move. And I truly, truly hope that Danny Villeneuve goes down this route, or at least takes some cues from the miniseries, because I think they did it right here. Like you said, this miniseries did Irulan justice. 100%. I'll wrap up my little thought here with a little thing I'd like to share. This is from page 26 
of The Secrets of Frank Herbert's Dune. You might actually be able to hear the paper book I'm holding. It's very uh, Abu. These are like these are like reel to reels, except there's multiple there's pieces. So you kind of move the pieces around to get different content. It's a little crazy. Okay, hard to imagine, but I believe you. It's like a DVD, but slower (laughs) and very quiet. (laughs) Um, But this is an excerpt that I think really drives home my point about accuracy to the lore beyond just what's on the page, but also this point about Irulan. Quote, In the novel, Princess Irulan is simply the biographer, narrator of much of the story. But those who know the Dune mythology understand that she plays a significant character in the continuing drama. She couldn't simply be a cipher that would appear in the final scenes, a mere device for Paul to checkmate the Emperor. I needed someone who could take the character I gleaned from Irulan's writings and create a memorable persona. I found that someone in Julie Cox, also from London. A gifted and beautiful young actress, Julie has taken Irulan and given her a life that was only hinted at in the novel. End quote. Hell yes. I just love that excerpt. I think that this really drives home for me that the director and everybody on board understood that Irulan deserves so much justice. She's wonderful. <laughs> yes. Here, here. And that's my second point. Let's move on. Uh, Abu, your second and final thing you loved. What is it? So I'm going to be quick with this one because we've already sort of talked about book accuracy and adaptation multiple times now. I wrote down that one of the things that I liked was that very few book scenes were cut from this adaptation. And that's the kind of commitment that I can appreciate. So that's why I put it as my number two item that I loved about the series. It is commendable how much stays in this miniseries. That's not to say that I think every scene worked. In fact, I think a lot of the scenes didn't quite work, but they were there. And I think just the fact that they remained should be applauded because that's no easy task. And that's a valiant effort. Even if, in my opinion, it was a flawed one in this instance, it's still commendable. And I wanted to shout that out, that it's no easy task to try and bring chapter by chapter an entire book to the screen. Yeah, it's true. Well, getting awfully close to criticism there, Abu, <laughs> before your time. but Foreshadowing. <laughs> foreshadowing. We're going to get now into two things that we each disliked about this adaptation. Before we do that, we're going to take a quick break. So stick around. When we're back, we're going to talk about some maybe issues we had with this adaptation. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, folks. Let's now transition and switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the criticisms we have 
for this adaptation. And to kick it off for us, Leo, I want to hand the baton to you. I'd love to hear, after all the gushing you've done about this series, <laughs> the nitpicks you had with it. Uh, I Nothing. It's perfect. There's no problem with this show at all. I yield my time. No, just kidding. Uh, Baron Harkonnen has uh, done dirty. Don't like it. Uh-huh. Yep. So a couple of moments in this first episode really rubbed me the wrong way. And some of the choices made around Baron Harkonnen's scenes left me uh, a little bewildered. <laughs> to remind you, if it's been a minute since you've seen this episode, in the first episode, Baron explains to his captive audience that he mostly wants Leto and House Atreides feeling safe on Arrakis because that's when someone will be the most vulnerable. That's his theory. Make them feel safe so that they drop their guard. I appreciate the irony of that from like a storytelling perspective. If you hadn't read Dune, like if you were watching this in the year 2000 going, wow, that's such a good point. Mm -hmm. Works as a movie, works as a show, but I don't think it works as Dune. Like that's a very unbarren thing to say. Right. And then we get this baffling exchange. Beast Raban. I guess, is responsible for the hunter-seeker pilot, <laughs> which is very interesting. And this, you know, stirs up Leto and his security. Everyone's on high alert now on this attempt of Paul's life. And Baron berates Raban. He goes, you fool! How dare you, you idiot! Now they're on high alert. You've bungled it all. P Piter, save us figure out something and the piter <laughs> says something and he goes you're also an idiot oh, i'm surrounded by idiots listen there are two significant changes to dune canon here and both of them feel bad and i don't like it and i want to talk about them for just a second first of all baron harkonnen's smarter than this yes baron harkonnen is brilliant and this paints him as this like bungling melodramatic idiot and I also got to say, Raban, excuse me, not the fucking guy who hires a hunter-seeker pilot. <laughs> <laughs> He's a boots-on-the-ground guy. 100%. Meatloaf Raban? <laughs> Meatloaf. <laughs> yeah. Thick-slice Raban. He's a <laughs> unit, absolute unit Raban. I mean, keep in mind, he fucking dies in a raid in, in Dune. Like, he's a boots-on-the-ground, front-lines guy. He wants a knife in his hand, and he wants his knife in someone's body. He's not the kind of dude to, like, put a man in... I don't know. It just feels very not Beast Raban, you know? Totally, totally. Raban has never come across a problem in his life that he has not tried to punch. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it's just his modus operandi is violence and is direct yeah. involvement. I, I get that sense. Maybe that's just my opinion. But this felt so wrong to me and really just felt like drama for drama's sake rather than adherence to the source material. Yeah, I agree. It occurred to me as I was writing out these thoughts, this is where I think maybe David Lynch did a fair amount of harm to Dune. Oh, yeah. I think... Say what you will about David Lynch's adaptation. Again, I like it as a work of art. I think the cackling madman, eccentric but very energetic Baron was fun, but is 
in essence, also kind of here. And it doesn't really make sense. It's a very bold choice. And it's suspicious that it was made twice. Right. It's just deeply inaccurate to the Baron from the book. Yes, I think that that is true. And people can disagree. Like, listen, I'm not here saying facts <laughs> is and isn't. I'm saying from my understanding of the text, but I think that there's a lot of evidence to, to suggest that Baron is much colder. He plays a lot of his cards close to his chest. He's not the sort to spin and monologue to camera. He's the yep. one who goes, shut up, Piter, get to the fucking point. It's just very unbarren as far as I'm concerned. And I think that part of that might come down to the only other adaptation was Lynch's adaptation. Yeah. Anyway, to wrap my little complaint up with a nice little positive bow, I am so grateful that Stellan Skarsgård and Denis Villeneuve are working together on this current vision of the Baron because, goddamn, this pattern of the cackling madman Baron went on long enough and <laughs> current Baron, Baron Harkonnen in the 2021 movie, fucking unit. That yeah. thick boy, goddamn, steam me up, Baron. She heads <laughs> Dr. Yui. Also, tastes great. Bathes in <laughs> olive oil and balsamic vinegar. <laughs> really cares about his skin. That's the Baron we need. <laughs> yes, exactly. So anyway, that's my first sort of thing that really didn't work for me. What's your first uh, point of issue? Yeah, this one's big for me. I would say of all the tiny, inconsequential nitpicks I had throughout this episode, this overarching criticism nagged at me throughout the whole thing. Right. And was certainly a reason I could not enjoy it as much as I wanted to. The big thing I disliked about this adaptation is that simply there are too many white people in the cast. And I realize that I am criticizing a TV show from the ancient year of 2000 AD, but come on. Why is every single major character played by a white person? Yeah. Especially in a Dune adaptation. Anyone who has even a basic understanding of Dune knows how much of that story and how much of Fremen culture in particular is heavily inspired by Arabic and Islamic history. Arrakis itself is obviously supposed to represent the Middle East in many ways. And to me, it's frankly a little bit insulting trying to tell the story of Dune, which is so steeped in the traditions and cultures of brown people with absolutely no black or brown people in the cast. Right. Yeah. The moment where I wanted to like turn the miniseries off was when Stilgar walked in. Stilgar, of all people, has no right being just some white dude. And the other character that really irked to me was Duncan, because in the book, Duncan is described as a handsome man with dark hair and dark complexion, <laughs> yeah. and not the pasty <laughs> Scottish dude that we got in this miniseries. Not someone from Glasgow? <laughs> <laughs> Shocking. Yeah, hashtag not my Duncan is all I'm trying to say there. Yeah. Now, to get a bit geeky about this point, I know there is an argument to be made from a lore standpoint that 
Perhaps Dune is so far into the future that the story takes place in some sort of post-racial society 30,000 years into the future, and that Frank himself didn't actually identify any of the characters as specifically of Arabic or Middle Eastern descent. Sure, yeah. That's an argument that could be made. I personally think that's a huge cop-out, and that argument willfully ignores how much Frank, a white guy, borrowed from non-white cultures. And that's not a criticism of Frank. I've talked before on this podcast about how much I love that Frank respected the cultures that he used in his story or that he was inspired by in this story. He did the work to learn about them, understand them, and for the most part, represent them in fair and accurate ways in his book. Yeah. And basically what I'm trying to say is that is the least any adaptation can do as well. And I don't think the miniseries necessarily did that, in particular with the casting choices. Right. So I think that that's sort of on the side of this kind of post-racial argument, sure. But also, the Fremen have been on Arrakis for thousands of years at this point. You're telling me that desert living people who are constantly dealing with intense sun <laughs> haven't haven't like darkened i don't know yeah like adapted they're adapted skin. to fucking <laughs> the place they live i'm just saying i think even from a lore perspective it is a very difficult look when all of your desert inhabitants are well czechoslovakian as it turns out but right right <laughs> for other reasons but yes still yes <laughs> totally that's a great point as well and look I, w- I want to be clear that I'm not trying to like point fingers and accuse the creators of this series of being ignorant. We talked earlier in the episode about how it's clear they respected the story and they know a lot about it. Irulan as a character could not have been handled so well in this series by someone who didn't understand the story, by someone who could read between the lines. Right. You pointed out from that secret of Frank Herbert's Dune book, that behind the scenes book, some quotes from the director. And I wanted to bring some of them up because I think they're enlightening. Sure. Yeah. The book tells us that when talking about the costume design, for example, the director told his team, quote, I want you to think of this as Shakespeare, as Mallory. I want you to consider a kind of oriental slash Arab slash medieval European design concept, because I think Herbert's novel is infused with ideas and images from all these. End quote. So there we go, right there in plain text. It's obvious that the team understood the Eastern cultures and Arabic and Islamic ideas that were infused within Dune. And as much as that quote makes it clear they understood it, it also makes it even more egregious that then they decided to cast all white people. Yeah. There's another quote from the book from the director that I think is particularly telling. He says, quote, so I was insistent that we find the best actor for each of the roles. Luckily for me, everyone agreed that a production of Frank Herbert's Dune cries out for an international cast. Actors of different cultures and backgrounds could only enhance the different worlds of the story. I was lucky to have found an ensemble of gifted talent to bring each role to life. End quote. Beautiful sentiment. 
Could not agree more. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Let's do it. International cast, baby. Let's represent this story as it should be. <laughs> and it's all white people, yeah. right? Like, that's the disconnect to me. Like, you say one thing and you do another thing. And again, this is not accusatory in any way. I think there's just some unconscious bias here, right? Again, this is 2000. We're talking about 20 years ago. We are still having conversations to this day about how to get representation correct. And I wanted to just point that out and call that out because I think it's important conversations to be having. Totally. I think it's something that Danny and his team are thinking a lot about as well. Baby steps have been taken, but there's always more and better to be done. And again, to reiterate, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not calling anyone racist. And I'm not saying anyone on that team who created this miniseries was willfully malicious in how they cast the show or how they handled representation. But there's no denying that there was systemic issues and there were subconscious biases and subconscious racism here at play. And talking about it and calling it out and criticizing it is the only way things like that will change. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We, we talked about this very briefly in the Floyd Laxo episode, but that idea of like, for a lot of white people in particular, Dune would have very well could have been the first time they're being exposed to Muslim and Middle Eastern ideas and words and culture and names. And I think people will try to die on that hill of going, let's explain in lore why, you know, Fremen doesn't equal brown person. And I think that that's an argument that's made in bad faith because ultimately you have to acknowledge the impact that viewing this thing has on people as a real impact. And ultimately, I think having these conversations is the only way that it can continue to change and people can continue to understand, especially, fuck, with characters like Stilgar. You're right. right. I mean, you said, you said to me, and I think this is brilliant, you know, they can afford to fly actors from Glasgow, Scotland. They can afford to fucking find a black dude to play a role. Like, yeah, right. take the goddamn time for some representation. It clearly just was not on the forefront of their minds. And you're right. I don't think it's malicious. I don't think it's racist mm -hmm. in that sense. But I think that there is that if you ask the director, who do you want as Duke Leto? Who do you want as these people? And he thinks, who are the actors that I know? Well, that's when that unconscious bias really is going to become a problem. And again, what a great thing that we've come some distance and we have, <laughs> you know, the actors we have playing the characters we're playing now. But you're right. There's also a lot of room for growth. There's a lot more room, a lot of long ways to go. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Okay. So, Leo, I'd love to hear, I'm looking at the script and uh, all you wrote was, <laughs> here are some other minor complaints. So I, I guess that's your uh, pick for the second thing you wanted to talk about that you disliked. So let's hear it. Yeah. You know, again, broadly, I'm a fan of this thing and enough little things popped up that I felt the probably the fastest, most efficient thing would just be to rapid fire, get through a few minor complaints that I had with this adaptation. This is not in order, by the way. First up, Duncan's death. Oh my God. Duh. <laughs> this is, I <laughs> forgot that this is how he died in the adaptation. This sucks. <laughs> 
He's oh my god. The greatest swordsman in the universe. And he has like a Scooby Doo reaction to a missile <laughs> from an ornithopter. Uh, <laughs> with a giant <laughs> just like it's absurd. He was blown up by a rocket. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. Bad change. Don't like yeah. it. I I didn't believe that's what happened in the moment I watched it. That's how much this shocked me. <laughs> yeah. It's weird because he's such a significant person in Paul's life. And it's such a throwaway little moment that kills him. Yeah. Next up, no ornithopter escape. So Paul and Jessica, drugged by Yui, are taken to the ornithopter. And again, it's this hot potato game where the Harkonnens are trying to avoid being directly responsible for these very important political figures' deaths. Meanwhile, in this adaptation, <laughs> they just wake up in the desert? <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. So the taking the ornithopter escape scene out of it is very strange, especially when we have all these extra scenes. It would have been fun. <laughs> Next up, no still tent scene. Oh, this was, yeah, this was big. And I thought about this when you were talking about Paul's visions all being very galactic focused, because in the book, Paul's visions are all about the Fremen, but about other things. We get the sense that it's about other things as well. But it's really when he's in the still tent with his mother that he starts having visions of Muad'Dib and visions of the Messiah that he is to become and his sister and things like that. It is one of my favorite scenes in the adaptation, and it is one of the best scenes in the book. Right. And this scene is the beginning of Book Two Muad'Dib. It's the beginning of the emotional divide between him and his mother, right? My mother right. is my you enemy. You did this to me. You did this to me. It's just, it's so good. Sci-Fi Channel, give us the still tent scene. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. It's very strange. Anyway. Next complaint. We didn't get Planet Caladan. Right. The color it's, blue was taken, Leo, by the, Kaiten, you see. <laughs> they ran out of blue. <laughs> they used it all up in the <laughs> Kaiten scene. I understand it's expensive to make a whole planet from scratch, especially on sound stages in the Czech Republic. But still, like seeing Caladan and spending any amount of time on Caladan in the book, but also in Villeneuve's adaptation, gives us the ability to feel what it is to be on Arrakis, because we have that contrast. The wet, luscious planet Caladan to the harsh, dry planet of Arrakis. And you get all of these scenes where Paul and uh, Duke Leto, in this adaptation, are going, fuck this planet, this death planet, this planet fucking sucks. It's the right. first planet we've seen them on. We don't know what <laughs> Caladan is like. It's just, it's a very bold thing to leave in the movie if you're not even going to show where they came from at all it does feel to me like a production limitation yeah 100 percent. anyway it's just very much helps to compare and contrast caladan to arrakis to help us understand the perspective of our protagonists i felt it was missing and finally although there are a few more that i'm just not going to get into I'll wrap up with something that I think you and I might disagree on here, actually. Uh -huh. Jumping worms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but okay. I, from the books, get no sense 
from a lore standpoint that the dummy thick spicy boys have hops. I don't see them <laughs> dunking from the three point line. Okay. And yet here we go. The ornithopters flying away that 400 yard worm who I guess just ate the sand crawler. It's a little unclear is now leaping, chasing them into the air. Is it one of the most exciting scenes in the episode? Yes. Does it work as a TV scene? Is it fucking cool? Uh-huh. Totally. Uh-huh. But also, I don't like that kind of worm. <laughs> I want thick, girthy body uh-huh. worms. Ooh. I want yep. fat worms. <laughs> <laughs> I have no reason to think that that's not how they are. That's how I picture it. I also think that it adds a lot of uh, complications to the mechanics of riding the worm because you lift up the ring plate to let the sand in and the worm's like, cool, I'm just going to fucking jump. Boing. (laughs) Just like (laughs) does some crazy corkscrew, drags you against it. I don't know. It makes that more difficult. I don't know. I'm. It's a very small thing. I think it worked as the TV series. I don't think it works for the sandworms that I know and love. Shai Halud doesn't have hops, but that's that's my that's my takeaway. Anyway, I yield the rest of my time, Your Honor. Abu, <laughs> <laughs> what's your uh, what's your second point? <laughs> or you know, do you want to talk about the fat worms? I don't mean to cut this conversation topic off. No, 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 no. Actually, I, the only thing I was going to say is that scene has a lot of late '90s, early 2000s VFX going on true uh-huh and my interpretation was that the worm wasn't jumping but just extending itself out of the sand up oh. vertically interesting and not like leaping out of the sand but just it's so tall it's like stretching its neck trying to reach up but okay it does very much look like a jump because the vfx are you know early 2000s vfx Right. Especially on a TV budget. So I agree with you. I mean, I think the whole point of the worms is that there are these monstrosities. And just imagining a worm like bunny hopping through the desert kind of takes away from its gravitas. Okay, let me share some final thoughts and criticisms that I had for the miniseries. And this is the part where it's going to get a little nitpicky and subjective. So just to preface. My opinions, my thoughts, and how I interpreted it. Of course, Leo, you loved it, and I'm sure many of our listeners love it as well. And that's totally valid. Every piece of Dune content is special to someone, and that's what makes Dune amazing. Overall, I think a lot of the characterization is off the mark, or just simply wrong. Paul, in particular, really annoyed me in this first episode. Maybe he matures in episode two and three, and that'll change my perspective. Here, though, he is this unlikable, whiny little bitch. Yeah. And I just simply lost count of how many times he storms out of a room. And the one storming out of the room that really I was like, no, that's too much of a change. That's ridiculous, is when he does it in the banquet scene. <laughs> yeah. He's challenged at the dinner table, and then he's just like, huff and gets up and storms off which is just wrong i mean it, it is just wrong it is the exact opposite of what happens in the book in the book he fully takes command of that fucking room and that table right. when duke leto steps away 
And it shows us that how prepared Paul is for the dukedom, how well he's been trained, how mature he is for such a young boy. Right. That is totally lost in this TV show's version of the banquet scene. But I digress. Some other rapid fire thoughts for me to wrap up this section. I, in general, enjoyed William Hurt's representation of Duke Leto. I didn't mind it. But he definitely came off less benevolent slash tired like he does in the book and like Oscar Isaac portrays him and comes off more as like a generic like royal strongman duke is the way William Hurt kind of ran with the character not necessarily wrong or bad and overall I think he had some really powerful moments they tried to take the life of my son goosebumps yeah but it's hard not to make the comparison to Oscar Isaac who I think is just such a perfect Duke Leto and embodied so much of the nuance from the book in a perfect way that it's just Oscar Isaac is my definitive Duke Leto. Yeah. I mean, same. <laughs> He's so good. <laughs> He's so good. I also wanted to quickly comment on Saskia Reeves as Lady Jessica, because I think she actually did a really great job. I really enjoyed Saskia Reeves' representation of Jessica. And you made a point earlier at the top of the episode about how this miniseries actually gives her quite a bit to do and more to do than the other adaptations have. She is responsible. This is a change from the book, but I think a good one. She is the one who's responsible for stopping that water selling ritual. She makes that definitive choice. It is by her command that that tradition is stopped. And I think we've really got to see Saskia Reeves sort of flex those acting muscles and embody Lady Jessica in a way that we haven't seen in other adaptations. And even in Danny Villeneuve's version through rebecca ferguson so two thumbs up for that one that one's not really a critique i enjoyed it <laughs> yeah i was gonna say almost more agency and screen time for jessica in this version than the 2021 version yeah i think so i agree now to wrap up i didn't want to end on a bad note i mean i loved saskia reeves as lady jessica but i also wanted to just second your point from earlier about irulan loved Julia Cox's Irulan. She was electric on screen. And that scene where her and Paul are talking and slowly walking toward each other. And it's a long shot. And you just can feel the chemistry in the air. The sexual tension is mm -hmm. fucking thick. Like three C's <laughs> thick. I won't lie. That scene builds up to the moment where Julia Cox perfectly delivers the line, I'm trying to interest you. Whew. Yeah. Let me tell you, Leo. Let me tell you. She uh -huh. had me interested. I'll <laughs> let you imagine what that means. <laughs> Loved it. She knocked it out of the park with Aralon. Totally. <laughs> well, let's wrap up this episode on a positive note. Let's talk about our, our favorite scene from the adaptation and maybe share a little bit of what we liked about it. And I'll toss it to you right off the bat. What was your favorite scene from this episode? So for me, this was an easy one. The spice crawler scene. Yeah. Early 2000s, small TV, VFX budget aside, this scene was electric. This scene was epic. And frankly, I don't think it could ever not be epic. I loved this scene in the 84 movie. I love this scene in the sci-fi miniseries. I love this scene in Danny Villeneuve's adaptation as well. Right, And 
Here's maybe my hot take about this scene. I loved it so much that this is maybe my favorite version of the sandworm, just purely based on design, jumping abilities aside. <laughs> sure. Just the design of the sandworm, I'm Can shocked. Dunk. Got it. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's like a plus one, honestly. Add that to the resume. <laughs> I'm actually quite shocked that this sandworm didn't become like the more popular sandworm. Like we've all been stuck with the 1984 David Lynch sandworm forever until we got the more modern Denny Villeneuve design. But this design from the miniseries, I love. It's almost like a a mashup of both, of both Denny and David Lynch's interpretation of the sandworm design. The maw, the teeth, the mandibles. I don't I don't even know what the words <laughs> right words are for like the the like mouth features it has. It was all really, really good, really, really terrifying. Yeah. And I loved it. This is like the kind of sandworm I'd get like a plush toy of. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> What about you? What was your favorite scene from part one of this miniseries? You know, I tried to give any answer that wasn't the dinner scene, but <laughs> I failed the dinner scene. Alas. It keeps drawing me back in. Listen, just to walk us through it, starts with a shocking reveal to anybody familiar with the book. Irulan's here. Why? But she looks great. She's yep. incredible. Butterfly Irulan. Those are real butterflies, too. Did you see that in an interview with Julie no. Cox? Those are real butterflies on her dress. I mean, like, they're dead, you know? They're like, sure. What what is it called when you, like, taxidermy <laughs> not, a butterfly or something? Yeah, pinned or whatever. They're, so they're yeah. not trained butterflies? <laughs> <laughs> That's where they're the budget the, went, you know? That's where they ran out of money, training yeah, the butterflies. Of the $20 million, $17 million for <laughs> butterfly wranglers. <laughs> But yeah, fun fun fact. Real butterflies pinned to her dress there. I had no idea. Well, that's so cool. So yeah, incredible. We get, during the dinner, these kind of subtle and not-so-subtle jabs from the various actors. We see Butte, the fucking, like, we see the banker, we see the water seller, and then Paul running away is fucking strange, but it sets up two fantastic scenes. First... We get Paul questioning Gurney. And then to lighten the mood, <laughs> he Paul plays Baron <laughs> Harkonnen in oh just the God. most incredible little pantomime improv monologue with Gurney providing the backdrop, the score with his little balisette. It's so good. <laughs> it is funny. I liked that. Enter Irulan and listen. The scene has chemistry. It's so good. From Paul being a little bit embarrassed to have been seen, you know, like mocking another great house, to the standoff with the guards, it's such a good scene. So watchable. The pacing is fantastic. Irulan pounds some spice beer. <laughs> yes. Oh, my gosh. Just chugs it to impress him. And it works. He's like, okay fantastic the whole time she's being sarcastic and sharp she's teasing him leading up to him walking away and you're right it's a long shot 60 seconds of the actors who start off far apart looking at each other 
giving each other point counterpoint this kind of debate on what is the status of royalty as they get closer and closer, leading up to, quote, I'm trying to interest you. Well, are you going to dance with me or just stand there looking confused? Oh my and, God. And quote, oh, oh so oh. good. <laughs> just talking about it. Oh. Feeling feelings. God, my booth is nine degrees warmer. <laughs> <laughs> feeling feelings. Oh, gosh. Julie Cox. Fantastic. It's so good. Fantastic. Yeah. What best a scene. scene. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. that, that It is one of the best scenes in part one. And it's amazing to think it's a scene that doesn't exist in the books. Right. And I'll point out, Irulan doesn't fucking jump in this scene. I don't, what? Don't <laughs> I make characters jump who can't jump. No one jumps That's in true. this scene. Fantastic scene. Fantastic. <laughs> 12 out of 10 scene. No jumping in sight. You love Stop to see it. Jumping, worms. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we clearly had a lot of feelings about this episode. Yep. And I'm glad we could hash them out and express them here. I always have so much fun in these conversations with you, Leo. Mm. I frankly cannot wait to dive into episode two. Again, I haven't watched it yet, so I'm going in completely blind. And I'm genuinely excited to see where this series takes the story next. Yeah. And of course, we will be covering that in the next episode, in part two of our little sci-fi miniseries coverage. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, one more reminder before we go, we want to hear your thoughts about the sci-fi series. So write to us, gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com is the best place to reach out and tell us what you think about the sci-fi series, whether you're watching it for the first time with us now or you watched it 20 years ago when it first came out. We'll be sure in future episodes to include some listener messages. So write to us totally. and tell us what you think about the worm. Did it jump? Did it not jump? What's going on there? <laughs> we need a breakdown. <laughs> Should we recast all of these Scottish actors with more Czech actors? <laughs> Full Czech cast. Yes. All from the Czech Republic. <laughs> right. We need your hot takes on Jumpgate and Czechgate. <laughs> <laughs> well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic, so help spread the word of Mwadib by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network on lordparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the Golden Path.